This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 112. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, lessons from the front lines. Plaintiffs find $100,000 for arranging surreptitious recording of remote live deposition feed. Hey everybody, I hope you're having a fantastic week as always. Today's case in the spotlight deals with the problems of lawyers, deponents, and other observers, all three categories, secretly taping depositions, whether in person or participating or observing remotely. And not just taping the deposition testimony, but also conversations during breaks. And it's those off-the-record conversations that seem to be the target of a lot of the undisclosed taping. Why is this happening? Well, there are a few explanations. The collective wisdom from the reported cases where this has taken place seems to be that many attendees are secretly recording for intelligence gathering purposes. And that's because a number of the reported decisions involve the use of microphones and cameras that were placed and turned on specifically to capture not testimony, but private privileged conversations of opposing counsels and their clients. So a key driver of this kind of misconduct is that desire to capture discussions that provide insights into an adversary's views and positions. Now, thankfully, courts appear to understand that this is a particularly pernicious behavior given the rather severe sanctions that courts have imposed, fines ranging from thousands of dollars to $100,000, lawyers disqualified from further involvement in a case, and lawyers referred to appropriate bar disciplinary authorities. Another reason for this kind of conduct, well, possibly to gain leverage over an adversary or to expose comments to the media. That's something that we will see in today's case in the spotlight out of Nevada. A third, although much less likely motive, may be the creation of an audio file, for example, as a way of obtaining a transcript at no cost. Of course, you can now record a conversation, upload the audio file, and get a near instant transcript at very low cost. So that may be a third explanation, but it's not one that came up in our research, which is to say no lawyer or participant in the reported cases that we found claimed that their illicit recording was an effort to simply save money that led them to improperly capture conversations in a deposition room. In the case in the spotlight today, a judge fined two plaintiffs $100,000 in part because they had arranged for the surreptitious filming of a deposition's remote live video feed that was being transmitted to their lawyer's office. And that's a good case to illustrate what can happen because the undisclosed recording in that case was being conducted by a documentary film crew. That's who was with the plaintiffs as well as at least one of the plaintiffs lawyers and others. Now, according to the court filings, those who were attending the depositions in person were not told in advance that a film crew from the Pilgrim Media Group was capturing some of the deposition testimony at a remote location using the live remote feed. Now, you might recognize the name of that company. The Pilgrim Media Group is responsible for many high-profile documentaries or reality shows 
such as Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, Ghost Hunters, American Chopper, Wicked Tuna, and The Ultimate Fighter. Now, this is quite obviously a more extreme example of the undisclosed and unauthorized recordings being made in deposition rooms or remotely. In the show notes, we've listed a half dozen court decisions from cases where lawyers, deponents, or the parties themselves were caught secretly recording testimony or conversations during breaks in the action. Situations where there were second cameras behind or beside the videographer, the official videographer. Situations where microphones had been placed and were operating or where people who were recording simply had their cell phones in their pockets actively capturing what was being said. So this isn't conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat stuff. It's actually happening. And I suspect it happens a lot more than any of us realize. In every deposition, there are multiple cell phones on the table. If they're recording or videotaping, they're not going to make any noise whatsoever. An iPhone, for example, that is audio recording, looks like an iPhone that isn't. I suspect that for every lawyer or party who gets caught recording, there are probably a hundred or several hundred that have gotten away with it. It's kind of like bugs you see crawling around your house. There's a supposed rule of thumb that if you see one, there are probably a hundred others. By the way, did you ever see that horrible movie called Joe's Apartment? Quite possibly the worst movie I've ever seen, and I certainly don't recommend it, but for some reason that reference made me think of it. Now, for those of you who, that have followed me for years, you know that I have strenuously urged you to get away from the deposition room and away from any independent or adversarial parties or witnesses if you're going to have confidential conversations during breaks in the testimony. Deposition rooms, as you know, are filled with recording devices, known and unknown. Now, with remote live feeds, it's more difficult than ever, if not impossible, to know who's participating, watching, and recording, even and especially while off the record. And you may never know about these surreptitious recordings, or at least not until it's too late. In fact, the possibility that you might be able to get sanctions at some point down the road might pale in comparison, right, to the damage done by the distribution of illicit recordings, especially if they captured you in conversations during breaks that you never intended be recorded. That kind of thing can cause you, your client, and your organization irreversible harm. Sometimes we say things off the record that are a little impolitic, a little impolite, and if they're just juicy enough, they'll have a thousand views on social media before you leave the deposition room. Or, as in the case we're going to talk about in a moment, they'll wind up in a three-part documentary series. Now, just as an aside before we get back to the episode, we did not put out any podcast episodes in the last month because we were in the final stages of publishing the fourth edition of our showpiece practice guide, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, fourth edition. And that's now out. I certainly would encourage you to pick up a copy because I think we really knocked it out of the park on this one, the print version. And it's also available as an ebook 
is 615 pages and covers every aspect of the deposition process. Now, don't pass out at the thought of reading 615 pages. It's not meant to be read cover to cover like a traditional book. It's a field guide, a practitioner's manual. The way to approach it is to develop a working familiarity just with the table of contents, which is also brand new. Get a sense for the 16 broad categories it covers, which begins with uh, the process of choosing the best method of capturing a given witness's testimony. It might be depositions, it might be an affidavit, it might be something else. And the book ends 16 chapters later with discussions of taxing deposition-related costs at the conclusion of the litigation. So it covers the entire spectrum of your deposition practice. And then take a visual stroll through the dozens of subtopics in each broad category. Then you'll know where to go uh, the next time you have a question about what to do when a deposition-related issue pops up. The fourth edition is revised top to bottom with every section updated for substance and style. New chapters, dozens of new subsections, a new detailed table of contents, and more than 900 new deposition-related court rulings, many of those new cases issued after the publication of the prior edition of the book. So whether you're a deeply experienced litigator or fresh from the graduation stage at law school, pick up a copy. It's the most complete and thorough work on the market for active litigators on the art and science of depositions, completely up to date. And I should mention, there are no war stories, no stories about my life or about anybody else's life or career. It's just chock full of practitioner-related topics, top to bottom. And let me give you just one example how to use the book because there are so many topics and so much case law jammed into it that even I sometimes forget what's in there. I had something come up the other day in a case where an opposing lawyer told me that they wanted to redepose a key witness in a federal lawsuit because they believed that the witness, a former manager, had violated a confidentiality or separation agreement uh, in giving the first deposition. And so the my adversary immediately noticed this second deposition over my objection. Both of the issues that this raised, one, whether a witness can be forced to sit for a second deposition in a federal case, and two, the impact of confidentiality agreements on a deponent's freely given testimony are covered in the book. As for the issue of second depositions, I went to that section in the book copied the arguments and cases, and put that in my motion for a protective order. There's also a section in the book dealing with different kinds of witnesses. For example, witnesses who are ill, witnesses who are exhausted at the time of their deposition, those with language barriers, those with disabilities, and those with confidentiality agreements. So I went to that section that deals with witnesses that have signed, deponents that have signed that kind of agreement, read the discussion, copied all of the cases that are mentioned on that point, and filed the motion. Next thing I know, the judge is issuing an order nullifying my adversary's notice and declaring the depositions canceled. So in that situation, when I needed case law and arguments for or against very quickly, the book worked exactly as I intended it. Again, not to be read cover to cover, but to function as a resource or practice guide, a reference manual. It's overflowing with deposition-related case citations that support all the points we make. That's what it's all about.
All right, so back to the topic at hand. Again, this is a Lessons from the Front Lines episode. And as you know, these episodes shine a spotlight on a specific deposition-related court ruling. Do keep in mind that we draw our information from the court dockets to ensure we are as accurate as possible, but the rulings we discuss in these episodes are always subject to being withdrawn, modified, appealed, or otherwise amended. So the ruling at issue today arose in the case Winters versus Dennis, a civil lawsuit first filed in 2015 in Clark County, Nevada. Now, if that rings a bell for you, yes, that's where Las Vegas is located. The lawsuit arose following the death of Susan Dennis, a married local attorney and part-time judge. In January 2015, Miss Dennis was unfortunately found dead. Initially, officials ruled the death a suicide, finding that it was the result of a combination of oxycodone intoxication, that's a prescription opioid painkiller, and ethylene glycol poisoning. That is a primary ingredient in automotive antifreeze. Ms. Dennis's parents, who were apparently very, very close to her, were suspicious about the finding of suicide and had concerns that her husband had something to do with her death. Long story short, the parents commissioned a private investigation, and at some point thereafter, the husband was criminally charged with causing Miss Dennis's death. The parents, Mr. and Mrs. Winters, separately filed a civil suit against Mr. Dennis, the former husband, under what some refer to as Nevada's Slayer statute. And it is in that separate civil suit that the undisclosed taping of depositions occurred. So parents versus former husband. You may have heard of the case. It drew a fair amount of media attention, both local and national. Pilgrim Media created a three-part miniseries, and there were spotlight episodes on ABC's Nightline about the case. You can find some of those on YouTube uh, even today. The rulings that are the focus of today's episode say that the plaintiff's lawyers allegedly published or facilitated the publication of one or more depositions from a remote live video feed of depositions that were in progress somewhere else. The defendant husband, following his discovery that the parents had apparently arranged for the undisclosed videotaping, filed a motion with the court seeking, quote, terminating sanctions, close quote, meaning the dismissal of the parents' civil suit as a sanction for the surreptitious taping. The 12-page sanctions motion alleged that neither the parents nor their lawyers had disclosed to the husband that the live feed was being separately recorded by a film crew, and so they had no consent. The husband also argued that it was a felony in Nevada to intercept a wire communication without the consent of the other party, and thus to surreptitiously intrude on the privacy of another by recording that individual. Now, what did the parents have to say? Well, in their 59-page response, opposing dismissal for the undisclosed recording, they said, among other things, first, yes, they did participate in the filming of the program, but they didn't have a role relating to when the program would eventually be aired, and they actively took steps to prevent the airing at a time when it might affect the outcome of the case. So they told the court the timing of the broadcast took place without their knowledge or consent and without the knowledge and consent of their counsel. 
Uh, the parents and their lawyers also said, well, there really isn't any evidence to suggest that publishing the recordings of these depositions will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing the proceeding because the defendant husband had been criminally indicted and upon entry of the indictment, all of the grand jury exhibits, including deposition videos, written transcripts, and other documents had become accessible to the public. So the plaintiffs and their counsel say, we weren't the only source of the information about this case. They also pointed out that since the civil case where the taping occurred was not yet set for trial, and because it was unlikely that the civil case would be tried before the criminal one, it was equally unlikely that the airing of the documentary would prejudice the jury. And they had some other arguments as well. So what did the district court judge, Judge Elizabeth Gonzalez in Clark County, have to say about all this? Well, in the closing paragraphs of a 19-page, very detailed order, she said that while the court does not find that terminating sanctions, and again, dismissal, are appropriate, the court believed under the circumstances presented that other severe sanctions were indeed warranted. So the court ordered that any deposition surreptitiously recorded by Pilgrim Media with the plaintiff's assistance could not be used for any purpose, including witness preparation, and as we've discussed, further ordered that the plaintiffs pay $100,000 as a sanction. It's the largest fine by far that we found, but there are others in the show notes where fines relating to surreptitious taping of depositions and off-the-record conversations ranged from $6,000 to $20,000 for similar conduct. The message is that courts take this kind of misconduct very seriously. As I mentioned at the outset, other forms of relief awarded or considered by courts included disqualification of the attorneys involved in the undisclosed taping from further representation in the case, also prohibitions against the use of illicitly recorded depositions, and referrals of lawyers involved in this kind of misconduct to bar disciplinary committees. All right, let's talk about some practice tips, and then we'll wrap up. First, if you are particularly concerned about surreptitious recording in a given case, and my advice to you is to always at least have some degree of concern that this might be happening, but if you have a special particularized reason to be concerned, ask at the outset if anyone in the room is recording using any device, and if anyone says yes, ask them to stop and ask them to tell you on the record that they have in fact stopped doing so. Do this on the record. It can be something as simple as, before we get started, let me just ask if anyone in the room is recording right now by audio or video of any kind. Because I want to make clear that if that is happening, I object and I will ask a court to intervene and put a stop to it. That kind of preliminary comment can lay the foundation for sanctions later if it's discovered that someone did so despite your announced objection and they failed to disclose it. That's what a lawyer in the Andrew C, last name just begins with a C because it involved a minor. That's what a lawyer in the Andrew C case in the show notes attempted to do by making a similar statement. In that case, a lawyer was fined and forbidden from using a deposition transcript after the court found that the opposing lawyer had allegedly caused a second camera, not the one used by the videographer, to secretly record the deposition 
and conversations of opposing counsel and his client. And, the court said, uh, the lawyer had also allegedly caused a microphone to be placed in the room that additionally captured conversations meant to be privileged. In the Andrew C. case, the defending lawyer asked on the record, quote, as another preliminary matter, could we please have a statement on the record as to the services and products that have been solicited by the defendant in the video recording of this deposition, end quote. Examining lawyer said no services or products other than what you observe. Well, that answer was technically accurate because the question as asked didn't capture the possibility of microphones and cameras set up by the lawyer, not the videographer. So you need to make sure your question is broader than that. Here's a sample. Is counsel or anyone else in the room aware of any devices capturing the audio or video of this deposition other than those used by the court reporter or the official videographer? And we'll want to ask the same questions as to remote feeds of the deposition. Consider asking on the record to the counsel present and participating in the deposition, to your knowledge, is the video of this deposition being broadcast or displayed anywhere other than to the deponent and any participants that we see on screen right now? Silence by an opposing lawyer to that kind of question is not an answer. You must get them to commit on the record out loud that they are not aware of any further broadcast or transmission of the feed. Then ask of the deponent, is there anyone else with you? Are you or is anyone with you retransmitting this deposition in any way? Again, we've got to get audible answers. Commit them on the record to their responses. In the Esposito case, in the show notes, for example, the court took note of the fact in sanctioning a lawyer that the lawyer involved in the taping had made representations five times on the record that he was not taping anything. We all tend to think that if we can't see something happening, it's not happening. But there's simply no way to know these days if anyone in the room is using a recording device. And I suspect that if you are an active litigator, that someone has probably recorded one or more of your depositions and possibly conversations during breaks without you being aware of it. Here's another pointer. Consider stipulating before depositions begin that all deposition testimony will be deemed confidential and that no audio or video is to be provided to anyone other than the parties without the express consent of both the parties and the court. That kind of stipulation can create an expectation of privacy unambiguously where one might not exist otherwise. All right, one last pointer and we will wrap up for the day. If you're in an opposing lawyer's office or the offices of an adversary, just look around. Are there telephones on the table? Are there video cameras beside or behind the one being used by the videographer? Or are there cameras set up somewhere else in the room? Are there microphones or wires on the table that don't belong to the videographer or the court reporter? Again, that's the Andrew C. case in the show notes where the examining lawyer apparently conducting a deposition in one of his satellite offices, allegedly set up a second camera and a microphone that captured both the testimony and privileged conversations between the opposing lawyer 
and his client. All right, that's it for today. In a typical deposition, especially remote depositions, there are lots of devices and electronics capturing everything that's being said. So check it out. If you're not sure, ask about it and get an answer on the record. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes where we park all of our research for every episode and we'll talk to you again soon.